Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So Dave, you've got you've got some news to share. I do have some I'm pregnant and <laughs> <laughs> not, not. That's how rumors get started. Anyways, no, I am going on sabbatical. Yeah. And uh, if you don't know what a sabbatical is, it's time when your work is finished, even when it's not. And it's a time that you get to uh, walk out of the office and shut the door and then explore and new ideas, explore time to play, time to relax, time to read, write. Uh, I'm going to be studying Celtic spirituality in Scotland. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm pretty pretty fired up about that. And the whole thing was funded by a Lilly grant, uh, the Lilly Foundation based out of uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, so generously provided uh, some money for me and my family to to do some exploring. So I'm going to take three months beginning at the end of April and taking me to the beginning of August to uh, to unplug for a while. There's a, a quote that's actually come to mean a, a lot to me as I prepared for this, and it's almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including humans. <laughs> It's from Anne Lamont, and I just I love that. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to put that to, to the test this summer. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what uh, what you come back with, and uh, how that might help continue to shape the podcast. And that's something that we've explored a little bit as we've been, uh, you know, it's something that has certainly influenced the way that we ask questions, the way mm-hmm. that we we have these conversations. But uh, to bring that further into the podcast, I think will be be exciting. Yeah, I I, I can't wait, and then I'm just going to be meeting so many different people from so many different walks of life. Uh, uh, look for some of that, I, I believe, in the year to come. So, yeah, yeah, that'll be great. And so, you know, as as that happens, uh, we're still going to be still going to be trying to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 been no small uh, kind of undertaking to try to figure out how we keep our schedule and how mm-hmm. we keep it moving forward and uh, really accomplishing the mission that we yeah. want it to be about. Yep, and even just the two of us. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot. You know, uh, the two of us and and uh, uh, you know Carson, our producer, and and anybody else that's been helping us kind of keep this thing rolling in all mm-hmm. the various ways. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big task. So we are excited. We're going to take this opportunity, Dave, while you're gone, we're going to introduce another host. Wait, what? Yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm being replaced. That's, that's the real deal, but we'll, <laughs> we'll let you know that when you get back. No, uh, we're, we are excited. Uh, we're going to bring in, uh, our friend Carrie Smeshek and she's going to be, um, going to be an, another host for this podcast as we move forward. Um, three of us are working together this spring to, to make this happen. Um, but ultimately she'll be another, another one of the voices that you hear as we continue this mission of, uh, knocking down walls with curiosity and conversation. Yeah. She's got some great, great experience, uh, already as a, as a podcaster and she's, uh, and she's just going to be bring great insight and, and observations, uh, for our work. So can't wait to have Carrie on board. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. But for now, we are in the middle of a three-part series on immigration. Yeah, three, two, depends on two, how you count yeah, it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and today we, we want to introduce you to a community, one that we felt instant connection and rapport with. They had so much to share and teach us, not only about immigration, but also about openness. Yeah, you know, when we, when we start talking about immigration, it, you know, it's one of the many conversations that in our culture are just incredibly heated. Um, But I think, I think the conversation, you know, I said this last time too, I think the conversation can change when we start with dignity and value of people. And our guest today showed us absolutely that that's true. Um, You know, they really helped draw us out of the rhetoric and into the reality that, that people are facing. Um, The conversation of immigration issues in their community 
it hasn't necessarily been easy. No. Um, there's, you know, a lot of difference of opinion and all those sorts of things, but I think it has looked different because they've started with that position of, of openness and trying to be welcoming. Yeah. And, and really in an era, to me, in an era when so many people associate Christians with being closed off and small-minded, try Googling it once. Christian, why are Christians so, and then see what they say? It's, it's nuts. Uh, this community, they show us exactly the opposite of that. This is a community that is wide open and expansive in their welcome and hospitality, even with people they don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, so our guests today are from St. Michael's Church in Albuquerque. We'll introduce you to them today, and we'll hear some of their work with immigration and beyond. But for now, welcome to episode 81, Immigration and Community. Welcome to the Sandbox. We are here at St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was wondering if you guys would introduce yourselves. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, David McGuire. I've been here for uh, what seems like a very long time, 1988. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a while. When our, our church was actually in the little building across the way, uh, and all our kids were raised here. And uh, my wife and I are at a point in life where we can have time to devote to other things, and uh, this place is really important to us. It's been, it's kind of a, one of our former clergy here described it as a border church, that not so much as uh, the Mexican border, but just people who weren't quite sure whether they were into this Christianity thing or not. Mm -hmm. And so there are people who are dyed in the wool, cradle Episcopalians, and others who are Mm, sort of on the Zen Buddhist Baha'i end of the Episcopal spectrum. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, congregation. It's been lively for such a long time. There's been an immigration group here uh, for a while that uh, predates the last election, but of course there was a lot of energy around it uh, in, starting November of 2016, mm -hmm. because uh, it was just, it was used uh, so much in the campaign as an issue. Mm -hmm. And so we just, there were many of us that just felt like, we've got to do something. We've got to jump in. And I'm Joe Britton. Uh, I've been the uh, pastor at St. Michael's for three years now. And before that, I was uh, dean of uh, an Episcopal seminary that's part of Yale Divinity School. But my roots are uh, here in the West. I grew up in Colorado, and um, we have a home in New Mexico that we've been coming to for many years. So this was more coming home than, than, than otherwise. Um, and even at the time that I was uh, interviewing here uh, three years ago, the search committee was pretty clear that immigration was a area that they wanted to move in. Uh, and at the time, I don't think they had any clear idea of what that might be or how it might evolve, but it's uh, been an issue in New Mexico, of course, for a long time, it being a border state and a minority-majority state where there is no dominant uh, uh, culture or race, and so uh, they thought it was was an important part of the social outreach ministry of the parish. And uh, an important part of the story is my my predecessor uh, Brian Taylor had been here for thirty years. He had a very long pastorate, 
And he had really cultivated St. Michael's to be both a place that had uh, what's often called a contemplative core, Mm -hmm. but also a very, uh, as David was saying, a kind of border ethos of always being aware of who was, was at the edge of the church and just maybe on the other side of it. And he made uh, the championing of um, LGBTQ rights uh, a major issue for the parish at a time when in our diocese uh, and in the state, it was still a pretty rare thing, at least here in New Mexico, to to be so progressive on that issue. Uh, And so uh, St. Michael's developed a reputation for being very uh, open and inclusive in that regard. And I think the interests when I was interviewing here and looking at immigration was an instinct that uh, it was time to build on that uh, openness and ask who else was hmm. was was outside either of the church or of the the nation or the society and uh, ask ourselves who we needed to reach out to as an extension of the ethos that had already been built into the uh, congregation. Um, so as David was saying, it, it, it's not just a reaction to uh, recent political developments, but something I think that had already been woven into the fabric mm-hmm. of the parish. And the election in 2016 galvanized that, but it wasn't uh, mm-hmm. the thing that, that brought the parish's interest into the immigrant community into mm-hmm. being. So it's really been a part of kind of the heart of this community for a long time. Maybe not that particular, but uh, that sense of, of wondering, who are we missing? Yeah. Yeah, and St. Michael's was one of those parishes that that I think in the 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 Episcopal world people have watched with interest for a long time. It's one of those parishes that's that's a little ahead of the rest of the church in lots of ways, uh, uh, not only on social justice issues but in terms of its uh, liturgy and worship. I think it tends to be more willing to try new things mm-hmm. uh, and have a wider expression of. Uh, worship styles than perhaps the the typical parish so it's it's a bit of a trendsetter even though it doesn't self-consciously try to be that i think the ethos here is people just uh, are well-intentioned and want to do the right thing and that leads us into a lot of engagement both both spiritual and socially and trouble (laughs) (laughs) yes yes we there's a famous story that we got ourselves in trouble with the diocese uh when the the parish hosted a service of reconciliation for the LGBTQ community just at the time it was about to build a new uh, worship space and the the diocese uh, had promised a loan which uh, the bishop at the time uh, yanked when he found out about this service. (laughs) And as a result the parish had to refinance it at commercial rates which cost quite a lot more. But word got out and as I understand it, this is before my time, as I understand it, the donations poured in, it was actually paid off much quicker than anybody mm. would have expected. Mm-hmm. So um, that gives you a little bit of a sense of the, the parish's place, both in the diocese and the wider yeah. church. So David, I'm curious, you've, you've been around a little bit longer and you've maybe seen more of this happening. So what's what's your insight into that or, or what, um, what drives that kind of culture and, and kind of heart of this place? I think... Um well, for for many years, I used to say you had to pay me to go to church because I'm a tenor, and so I would be in the church choir, and uh, so I would sing in you know Episcopal or the Dutch Reformed or the Presbyterians or 
And so I'm not a cradle Episcopalian. I'm a mm-hmm. cradle Methodist. And so I don't have that a sense of really of what a lot of other Episcopal churches are like. Um, I do get the sense that they're, I mean, they, they like the liturgy for a lot of reasons because it sets the structure and this is how we're going to do things every Sunday. And uh, that kind of the flexibility that we found here and the openness, the open-heartedness that we found when we first walked in uh, the many years ago um, is just different. It's different than other churches that we experienced here in Albuquerque. I think it's been a very interesting, adventuresome church uh, for, since its inception in mm. the 50s. And I hear in what both of you have said, you both use the word open mm-hmm. like several times, I think, each. There's an openness to those who are at the margins. And how do you express this? How do you let people know about this openness? Uh, and, and how do you go to the margins to care for, for people uh, in intentional ways? Something that's important to say is that uh, contrary to the wider reputation that New Mexico may have, uh, as being a place of art galleries and the Santa Fe Opera and Taos and all that. In fact, it's one of the poorest, if not the poorest state in the United States now. Um, and I think St. Michael's, uh, partly given the neighborhood that we're in, which is a very mixed neighborhood, is quite aware of that and realizes that, that poverty is an issue that's very much on our doorstep. For example, we decided several years ago, uh, again before my time, uh, to reach out to the two local uh, public elementary schools. And uh, I think the expectation was that uh, in asking them how we could be helpful, that they would say, oh, we could use new computers for the computer lab or library books for the library or something. And the response came back, well, you know, the thing that we most need is actually socks and underwear for the kids so they can Mm -hmm. come to school. And so we said, okay, well, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll have an annual fall drive to, to collect socks and underwear for the kids. So I think the church has, has been uh, aware of its location. And while we try to embrace a lot of the cultural ethos of New Mexico in worship and um, the like, uh, we don't use that to paper over some of the really hard realities of the community in which we live. And I might extend that also by saying that I, at least since I've been here, and I think this has been true for a long time, have tried to bring what's going on in the wider society into the experience of worship in ways that probably a lot of churches would be a little reluctant to do. Um, so, for example, a couple of years ago when there was the shooting at the Pulse nightclub, mm-hmm. uh, we thought about how are we going to observe that uh, because we couldn't just remember it in our thoughts and prayers. We had to do something more more mm-hmm. expressive than that. And so we crafted in the, the liturgy uh, an opportunity to uh, have a, a sand tray at the altar where people were invited to come forward and light candles in memory of those who had died and to uh, ritualize the the grief that the community was experiencing, especially because of the fact that there's so many LGBTQ people here who felt that that was more than just another mass shooting, that it was an attack upon their own sense of identity and safety and Mm -hmm. security. And and so we had to reestablish that sense of safety here by acknowledging what had happened there in our our own midst. Um, Or even this past, 
Sunday after the week in which um, the administration had been on the rocks because of separating children from um, their families and parents at the uh, the border, we really wrestled with what we should do on Sunday morning about that. And our intention was that we would actually use one of the uh, Psalms of Lament, Psalm 142, and behind that play the um, audio of uh, the children crying that mm. had been posted mm. by ProPublica. In the end, I think we backed off of that feeling like that crossed a boundary of becoming manipulative rather mm -hmm. than making an appropriate observance. But we did read the psalm uh, in the inter, uh, International Children's Bible Version, which makes it sound like it's the children who were in the detention center speaking the psalm. We read it very slowly and meditatively in worship. And I think it, it struck a very poignant and powerful note with the congregation that this was something that was happening in our nation's life that had to be observed um, uh, ritually. And of course, the fact that we have in the parish here a family that's living where the children are, are with their mother, even though the father's in detention, I think that came pretty close to home, that it, it, mm -hmm. it could have been our family whose children had been separated from them. Mm -hmm. So that's been an important part of it. In fact, um, one of my former students at the Divinity School, um, who's up in the Diocese of South Dakota now, asked me to come up and do a, a clergy retreat in, in February. And I said to her, I said, I've been waiting for an invitation to South Dakota in February all my life. I'd love to do it. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I said to her, what about if we use as the theme pastoring in times of anxiety? Because mm. I find that's a really mm. tough challenge right now is what does it mean mm -hmm. to be a pastor of a congregation when so much is going on, on, on almost on a weekly basis in the wider society that somehow has to be experienced and and registered uh, in the mm -hmm. church. And so we, we spent several days together talking about that topic, and I, I think it really did hit uh, a bit of a raw nerve for the clergy who were there. For them, it was more issues related to a lot of uh, reservation life, but um, it's not surprising to me that a lot of congregations have been reading Bonhoeffer uh, mm -hmm. recently. I'm, I've been struck by how many reading groups or forum series or something like that have gone back mm -hmm. to Bonhoeffer to to mine, I think, their, his own experience and wisdom for what does it look like to be uh, a Christian church and to be a Christian pastor in a time when so much seems to threaten our, our really core values and our own sense of, of decency and our sense of the, the dignity of the human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for those who are listening who might not be familiar with Bonhoeffer, he's the, the German theologian who was part of the Confessing Church uh, in Nazi Germany who uh, was part of a plot to, to assassinate Hitler. Um, the issues that he was in his writings have been so much more popular uh, in these days than than ever before. Uh, but you mentioned earlier the uh, the sanctuary church, that you are a sanctuary church. Uh, how did this come about? Um, so we actually um, were asked to consider being a sanctuary church. We've got two other churches in town that have someone in sanctuary and have made the decision. There are a couple of other churches that are thinking about it and are going through a discernment process. We had started a discernment process. and. Um, it's interesting that you all are looking for 
conversations and ways to bridge gaps because that's a lot of what we were struggling with. It is not something that you just say, oh yeah, okay, let's go, let's all go do civil disobedience. Oh, you know, how about it? <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, it, it was a challenge. It was, it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty progressive church, but it's not totally blue. And I, I value that. Mm-hmm. I value knowing that two or three people that I sing with in the choir didn't vote the way I did in the last election. I haven't asked them whether they're still happy about it, but you know, but I know there there's a difference mm-hmm. there, the different opinions. So um, we went through quite a deliberative process, researching, talking to other churches who had offered it. We had some great connections in uh, San Mateo, California, and in Phoenix with churches that were offering sanctuary. There's a church in Tucson that was doing it in the 80s, and so they're well aware, well well into this. Then we started having conversations internally. What, what would this mean? How would this, what are we called to do here? And, and there were people that to this day stay, say, well, it's just illegal and you just shouldn't do it, period, mm-hmm. case closed. And um, and I can respect that because laws are important, but I think I'm always struck when people talk about the chapter in Romans, you know, and you're supposed to follow all the laws. And I wonder, was that one of the letters he wrote from prison where he had been thrown into jail for something? Uh, because it just seems that it's ironic that they're quoting this guy as follow every law. And, and he was thrown into jail all the time. He was constantly <laughs> in trouble. So... How? Where do we draw the line for us as a mm-hmm. congregation? What's What's important for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't quite sure how to go forward. We were continuing to talk to individuals and talk to groups, and then we got a call from the Faith Coalition, uh, the folks that I mentioned earlier, the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice here, who said, "Look, there's a family in El Paso." The dad is in detention. The mom and the kids are in a kind of a halfway house that the Catholic Church runs, and they need a place to live. Now, this is not sanctuary. These are asylum seekers. And so they're, at least today, perfectly legitimate, absolutely legal, no legal issues at all. And um, you could almost hear the sigh of relief from all the people that didn't want the conflict around sanctuary to be an issue. And we, in a matter of days, moved equipment, moved furniture, got grocery runs, got just spun up uh, a living space for the mom and the two kids uh, from Angola who have uh, who fled violence and torture in their country. And uh, the dad is in uh, detention in El Paso, which unfortunately has a not a good... The judges there are pretty hard on asylum seekers. Hmm. They got something like a 2 to 5% approval rate. Hmm. So we, we're, we're concerned about that, but we are hosting the family and helping them as best we can. Mm-hmm. What does that look like here to have those differing opinions, to have very, very stark uh, opposing viewpoints and yet still ask the right questions to be able to move forward together? 
I kind of feel like that process was was interrupted a bit okay. because because we had the opportunity to to offer asylum. Sure. Uh, and so we really just stepped back from the more difficult conversations. Um, if we go back into that, then then I I hope we learn something more about the kind of conversation you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just what did it look like up until that point? How did it feel to be part of a congregation that was wrestling very front and center with those questions? Well, there were folks that were, why haven't we done this already, mm-hmm. That of that opinion. And there were others that needed to have some questions answered. And once they got some questions answered, they said, oh, okay, uh, let's do it. And others that um, still, regardless of however many questions get answered, are not going to be happy about it. Um, and it was, uh, I had some one-on-one conversations, and I think Joe did too, with people who were just, who said, this is, I just can't go with this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And where we left it was, we're listening. We're not forcing anything. We're not going to make something happen that people can't live with, but we're not going to drop the question either. Mm-hmm. So. One thing that struck me in the process is that um, <clears throat> uh former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, um, had quite a mess on his hands in the Anglican Communion when he was the Archbishop. And one of the things he continually advocated for was the importance of taking time, the importance of of, uh, giving one another time enough to uh, come to some common point of understanding, if not of, of agreement necessarily, but at least of understanding. And um, I think one of the things that allows one to take time is a deep prayerfulness out of which often emerge the surprising and unexpected twists that give that gift of time in ways that that would be unexpected. And I think this call that David was referring to from the coalition asking if we could take a family seeking asylum in rather than than push the sanctuary issue gave us time for several things to to happen that i think might frame the conversation a little bit differently if we if and when we take it up again one was that um in the meantime we had the uh, an opportunity to do some legal research and in particular uh with the Um, University of New Mexico Law School that had a law clinic that was working on the immigration issue and they had some of their students, interns, do uh, a legal opinion about the issue of sanctuary, which as David mentioned was kind of a sticking point. And they provided a pretty comprehensive documentation that that at worst it's a gray area of the law. It's clearly not uh, illegal without question. Mm-hmm. It may be, uh, and it depends on which circuit you're in in the United States and so forth, and it may not be. So I think it's if we went back to the issue, we could certainly make the case that it's it's not adequate just to say it's illegal mm-hmm. on case closed. There, it's more complicated than that. So it's given us time to, to, to learn and, and to um, grow more savvy. Um, I think um, also... Uh, the time has given us to put a face on the immigration issue by experiencing the family that's been here mm-hmm. and to realize that it's it's uh, the individual circumstances of immigrants are just so much more complicated 
uh, than the statistics and numbers that get thrown around in the popular press. And when you enter into the narrative and story of a particular individual or particular family, you realize that, that the laws themselves are not necessarily capable of taking into account mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the needs that are presented on our doorstep by people that are seeking um, some place in the United States for, for whatever reason that might be. So my sense is that that has, has perhaps shaped and shifted people's thinking uh, some, that if we were to go back to the issue, it would be a different conversation now. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another thought that it has been in my mind a lot, um, I had the sense that when the Angolan family, in a sense, was knocking on our door, that if we had said, no, we really can't do that, that's not a road we're going to go down, that it would have been as if we had turned Christ himself away. And I, mm. I said this openly in the congregation. And my own conviction, which I, I, it may be shared by some and is not shared by others, is that um, that would have been a, uh, an undermining of the spiritual integrity of the congregation in a way that we would have felt some retreat of the Holy Spirit from our life and ministry together mm -hmm. that if we had shut the door we would have shut something out not just the family but something of the presence of christ but when we opened the door and as david said really did so readily uh, my sense is that the spiritual gifts that have come in as a result of that f are are far in excess of just the the witness and ministry of taking care of a family and and making their path in life a bit easier and a bit better, but that it's it's really deepened our ability to wrestle with these kinds of questions by a more lively and visit, uh, visible sense of Christ being in our midst. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I think would, would change the conversation about sanctuary per se if we went back to it. What conflict uh, have you seen within the congregation and and outside of the congregation from the broader community these are these are steps that a lot of churches resist taking and these are these are decisions that uh are led out of a core conviction as you clearly said it's core to who you are uh, what conflict do you have how do you handle that do you hear people saying no i go to church to feel good you're getting political now how do you respond if you've ever heard that here? <laughs> Never heard that. <laughs> I, I hear. I, I have no idea. What I, 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 I've heard rumors in some churches that people talk like that, but I, I. It's a tough one because I think the if political means caring about humans and the human condition and acting on that, then there's just there's a lot of politics in the New Testament that. Is is would be real troublesome to was troublesome to people. Obviously, I think people forget how many laws Jesus broke all the time, healing on the Sabbath, hmm. my Lord. But it it does. I hope it gives us more fodder for the conversation when we come back to it about uh, what's legal and what does that mean and where should that take us. Where what what if we really are to look for guidance in the life of Jesus and the life of the apostles, what's the guidance? And kind of start from there, as opposed to saying, we're going to be political. No, that's, 
there's a, there's a there's a life path to follow. I think my thinking on that issue is very much shaped by uh, Abraham Heschel. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on him and ended up uh, publishing a book on his work. And he was so convinced uh, that the call of the Hebrew prophets to uh, to the people of Israel to be a community of justice, that he saw that woven into the fabric of every aspect of religious life. Uh, for him, I think it would be entirely artificial to, to think that you could separate political issues from, from religious ones because Religion is about the way we understand the dignity of the human being and therefore how we treat one another. And if that's your, your starting point, then everything political touches on that core issue. And, and you can't um, pretend that uh, uh, somehow politics is separate from or religion is immune from uh, of being engaged with that. Um, and we've done a fair amount of, of, of work here at the, the parish and study groups and, and the like on, on Heschel. So that, that's, that's a part of the, 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 the conversation here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I threw a distraction at the parish recently <laughs> in that uh, after however, how, how many years have you been in the congregation or the, the new worship building here? About 20 some years, 24 years or something? Yeah. Well, I rearranged the pews. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And um, it's it's a church that if you go into it and look at it, 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 it's kind of wanting to be in the round already, but it isn't quite. So we more or less made it that. And uh, pushing what was a latent instinct architecturally to, to its logical conclusion or illogical extreme, depending <laughs> on which way you look at it. But um, in doing that, at least a part of what I thought would be helpful is, is to keep coming back to the point of what can we learn from this? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, there's no one arrangement that's necessarily better than the other, but there is something to be learned from it. And, mm -hmm. and what are the questions that we can ask? And I kept posing questions like, what do we want to say about our understanding of God by the way in which our worship space is configured it, uh, configured in the way we experience it? And what does it say about our sense of community and of being the body of Christ, as Bonhoeffer talked about, mm -hmm. that, that the, the, uh, the church as the body of Christ is his presence in the world and that he has no presence other than that? Um, so, so if we are facing each other in, in worship, does that say something more strongly about our identity as being a single community that's knit together as the body of Christ or, or, or not? So um, uh, we've tried to model in that discussion uh, asking people for their experience, their, their insight, their opinion, and to try to keep pushing the, the conversation to a, to a deeper level without ever just saying, that I like it, I don't like it, um, we're going to do it this way, we're not going to do it that way. Um, and I think it, it's been a kind of parallel discussion to the, to the more social justice oriented issues in that it's been an opportunity to model a community in discussion and in disagreement over some pretty important issues, uh, and yet in this case it was ultimately about something that was not of ultimate importance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's been an interesting little... 
journey since Pentecost. We did it on Pentecost, which which I said was the 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 the, the day that the Spirit turned the church inside out. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> and actually, that, that's been a, a a theme that I've used to describe some of this is is talking about turning the church inside out uh, at the annual meeting. What was it? Two years ago now? Two years ago, I think that was the theme of what I said, and I used it as an example. Um, uh, jazz mass that we did back at the Divinity School, uh, which uh, in many cases took old uh, familiar hymn tunes and transposed them into jazz pieces. And I showed a, a clip of um, the concluding hymn, which was the, the doxology, the old hundredth. And it started out with a very staid organ accompaniment and the congregation singing. And then after the first verse all hell broke loose so to speak <laughs> and it turned into a jazz piece and i said who knew that within the doxology there was buried a piece of jazz and there it was and all you had to do was just turn it inside out so i think that's been a little bit of a, a, a catchphrase around here is that we've turned a number of things inside out hmm. and the immigration uh, ministry has been one instance of that um just for example, after we made the decision that we were going to take the family in, there was the question of, well, who are we going to house them? And that turned into another controversy because certain territorialities emerged. Uh, and one day, um, I just had the bright idea that the end of this new office building where we are now, uh, which was my office and across the hall was a, a room called the Galleria, uh, would make an excellent uh, shelter for uh, a homeless family. So. Uh, I moved out and they moved in and that was kind of another turning of the church inside out. We turned to space that we never even thought of as being possible for that purpose. So there's been a lot of that, of, of, of people's experience and thinking just <laughs> inverting itself. You touched on it a little bit talking about kind of the, you know, rearranging the, the worship space as kind of a, a little bit of a template for challenging conversations, but I'd be curious to know, um, a little bit more about how you maybe collectively think about the process for engaging in some of those challenging things. Is it, have you, have you learned how, how this congregation changes? Have you learned what questions provoke the right kind of response? Like what, what kinds of questions are you asking and what ways are you entering into some of that for things that might appear that just need to be addressed? I'll have one thought, and then David will see what you have yeah. to add. I think one of the most important aspects of that is going back to what I referred to as the contemplative core of the parish. Um, it's a parish that has a great deal of confidence in the power of listening for the Spirit. And there's several times in important meetings where we have taken a very long period of time to do um, meditative prayer before we began the discussion. For example, a uh, uh, vestry retreat that we did uh, earlier this year, it was supposed to be a three-hour retreat, and we spent the first hour doing Alexio Divina on a poem by Jan uh, Richardson uh, on uh, Epiphany Pilgrimage. and. It shaped the uh, the conversation of that gathering in ways that we could not have planned for or anticipated. So um, some of it is less strategy or method and is more a, a, a deep 
listening that um, has some real confidence and faith in it that, that something important comes out of that. Mm -hmm. And that and that it's often someone else's voice that will reveal to you what it is that God is saying to you, and that sets that uh, a bit of that context that that um, it's not the kind of listening that's advocated maybe in a more secular environment where it oh it's important for us to listen to one another's opinions, but it's really a sense that in in what somebody else says there may be a, a word of God spoken to you, and so you have to listen very carefully and attentively for that. You're not just listening listening to understand their point of view. Mm -hmm. You're understanding to hear what God is saying through their point of view to you. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in finding ways to not just go into problem solving and not go towards a vote on something, but to listen in a deep way and find ways to turn off the knee-jerk reaction that says, Oh well, if you think that, you probably think these other three things, and therefore mm -hmm. I'm not going to. I'm going to discount this thing that you're saying now. It's this all that the baggage that we've built up in our in our culture right now. Having said that, I think that I'm very aware that we have the luxury of taking our sweet time hmm. to have conversations and make decisions, and and in the meantime, people are suffering and. It's a ch it's a challenge, mm -hmm. and I think something I've noticed as of late that's a complicating factor. Uh, this is something I think you, Dave, alluded to, is that I, because things are so volatile, um, I find people coming to church more um, uh, emphatically, perhaps, wanting some kind of peace and privacy and protection and I think that starts to erect some resistance to engaging issues as openly as perhaps we've sometimes been used to in the past um, because people feel quite brutalized and beat up by the time they get here mm -hmm. um, and this little experiment with the pews I think sort of surfaced some of that and a lot of people said you know I I don't want to have to look at somebody else I just want my little space where I can kind of put myself back together on Sunday and and that's not an unreasonable expectation or hope uh, and one has to be sensitive to that but I think it is uh, an issue that communities are, will have to struggle with is where do we find that balance between taking care of people as they arrive and the spiritual condition they are in and trying to press a little bit on what is the next thing that we need to think about or be doing or um, taking up. Several months ago, we discovered that we were going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and our original interview fell through. So we looked for people who were doing fascinating and excellent work in the area. I cold called St. Michael's Church and Joe and David said, yeah, come by, let's talk. In the process, we discovered an open community, open to cold calling podcast hosts, open to people in their mixed and changing neighborhood, open to people who find themselves at the margins, open to LGBTQ folks, immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, those who don't quite fit the box of religion and religiosity. And Joe's words at the end frame the core reasoning behind this openness. He said that as we value, care for, and listen to what the other is saying, 
There may be a word that God is speaking to you. Listen carefully to others, and you may just perceive the nudgings of the divine energy of the universe. And honestly, if that's what sits underneath it all, who wouldn't strive to be open? Who wouldn't try to listen carefully? One last thought. As you go through this upcoming week, how might you incorporate some of this openness and deep listening in your life? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And a special thanks to David, Joe, and the community at St. Michael's in Albuquerque for being such great hosts for us. Yeah, you know what? And David sent me an email not too long ago and uh, sent an update. He, he was saying that quite unexpectedly and wonderfully, the husband of the family that was living at, at St. Michael's was released from detention in El Paso and was reunited with his family. Such good news. Great news. And they made quick plans and got the couple married in the United States. Apparently the Angolan way wasn't good enough for government paperwork, <laughs> but they got it done. And now they've moved to Philadelphia where they can find a, a more supportive environment. As David said, all good news. They were welcomed by a Catholic workers temporary living house there, as well as the Episcopal Diocese of Pennsylvania. So they left this Fast, this great community in Albuquerque, and we're welcomed by a new community out there on the East Coast. Yeah, that's great news. I remember when we talked to them, they had no idea, you know, the kind of expecting the worst. And yeah. um, it's, it's great to hear that that story ended well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, if you want to stay up to date with all the things that we've got going on in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or you can sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And you can also rate and review us on iTunes and join in the conversation. And as always... Be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the sandbox. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.